Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. The Home Office wants to make it easier to take people's British citizenship away, specifically by removing the requirement to notify people that it's happening to them. This has caused quite a fuss and citizenship deprivation powers are now getting some perhaps overdue public scrutiny. So how does citizenship deprivation work? Who can it happen to? And what would change under the Nationality and Borders Bill? Joining me to discuss this is Alistair McKenzie of Daily Street Chambers, a barrister who's been fighting citizenship deprivation cases long before it was cool. Hi, Alistair. Hi, CJ. The reason I keep saying citizenship deprivation is because that's the technical term, right? That's the language in Section 40 of the British Nationality Act, which authorizes the Home Secretary to do this. And I want to start by distinguishing that there's two types of deprivation under Section 40. Can you briefly describe those for us? That's right. So there's a power to deprive people of their citizenship if they acquired their citizenship by fraud, by uh, giving false information or a false identity, for example. Uh, And then there's a power to deprive people of their citizenship on the basis that it's conducive to the public good. That's the phrase used in the Act basically means it's in the public interest to take away their citizenship. And if we talk about the frauds instance, that's section 43 of the Act, that's where, can you flesh that out a little? Someone has lied on their citizenship application, is that kind of the the main circumstance there? That's right. If they've lied on their citizenship application, um, if they've used a false identity, if they've given uh, false information to the Home Office in the course of their application for status in the UK in the first place, uh, or for example, if they've covered up a uh, an offence, if they failed to mention a serious offence, which might have caused the Home Office to uh, refuse them citizenship, then they can later be deprived of that citizenship on the basis that the Home Office would not have granted it to them in the first place if they'd known about the truth. What people tend to have in mind when they think about this subject is the second type of deprivation conducive to the public good, Section 42 of the British Nationality Act. And in practice, or at least this is my understanding, that conducive to the public good tends to mean national security concerns. The Home Office says, you're a terrorist, or we think you're a terrorist, we're going to take your citizenship away for that reason. Is that what conducive to the public good means, legally speaking? Well, that's one of the things that it means, yes. I mean, one of the problems is that conducive to the public good is not defined in the Act itself. So it's defined in the Home Office policy, uh, which, of course, the Home Office can change if it wants to. But at the moment, um, terrorism is certainly the one of the things that the Home Office mentions in their policy as being uh, a basis on which somebody can have their citizenship taken away. But they also talk about espionage, serious organised crime, war crimes or unacceptable behaviours. Unacceptable behaviours is obviously very broadly drawn. We don't know what that means. It's presumably intended to mean something of a similar kind of seriousness as as war crimes or or involvement in terrorism. But it leaves quite a lot of scope for the Home Office to take away people's citizenship. So although the high profile cases, which a lot of people have heard of, such as Shamim Begum, involve people who've been alleged to have joined uh, terrorist organisations or organisations de- uh, designated as terrorist, such as ISIS. For example, a number of the people who were involved in the child abuse scandals uh, in the north of England had their citizenship taken away after they were convicted. Yeah, the so-called Rochdale grooming gangs. Exactly. And you say that conducive to the public good is fleshed out in Home Office policy. Like, are there any limits on how 
the Home Office, the Home Secretary could define that term? Could they extend it to mean, you know, less serious behaviours in future? Are, are there any legal limits on what that phrase means? Well, that's a very good question. And I think that's something which hasn't really been tested by the courts so far. Um, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been a great deal of pushback from the courts on the idea that, for example, the um, Rochdale child abusers should have had their citizenship taken away. Now, obviously, a lot of people won't feel uh, remotely sympathetic to those people. But as I said earlier, it, it's perfectly possible that people could have their citizenship taken away from much less serious offences in future. Uh, and whether there are limits to how far the courts will let the Home Office go is perhaps another question, um, which we don't know the answer to yet. I think it's important to spell out what tends to happen in practice today when these two powers are used. So if it's fraud, the Home Office is saying you obtain British citizenship under false pretenses or you lied to us in the past, you can't be British anymore. And then what? You, you'll get deported? Well, in most cases, you have a right of appeal against the deprivation on grounds of fraud. Uh, if that appeal goes against you, then uh, yes, you would probably face deportation action. Again, you'd have a right of appeal against deportation. If you've been here long enough to have acquired citizenship, uh, then it's likely that uh, you would have a human rights case uh, against deportation. Uh, there, are, there is a subcategory of cases which are known as nullity cases, where basically somebody has impersonated somebody else, i.e. pretended to be somebody else, whilst applying for citizenship. So not just used a false name or a false date of birth, but actually taken on another person's identity in order to make the application. In those cases, you don't get a right of appeal because it's deemed that you never had the citizenship in the first place, because the Home Office intended, it, intended to give it to somebody else. They intended to give it to the person whose uh, identity you've used, who may not want it, may not need it, uh, and, uh, and therefore in those cases it's treated as a nullity uh, and as never having existed. So in those cases you don't get a right of appeal. In the ordinary deprivation case where you've simply used, sorry, in the ordinary fraud deprivation case where you've simply used false information, then you would have a right of appeal and then a further right of appeal against any attempt to deport you after that. Okay, so you may have the right to say in the UK despite no longer being a British citizen. When it's conducive to the public good, the second type of deprivation, the dynamic seems very different because what seems to happen there, or at least in the high profile cases that uh, I've heard of and listeners may have heard of, is that the Home Office will wait until you're outside the UK, then they'll hit you with the deprivation of citizenship order so that you can't come back. So it's effectively exile and if you're a national security problem, you're someone else's national security problem. Yes, exactly. And that's one of the bases on which people have objected to the use of this power, that if somebody is a national security problem, then they should be our national security problem if they're a citizen of this country and they shouldn't be inflicted on other countries, which may be much less able to uh, manage those uh, security problems. But yes, it is the practice of the Home Office, they don't have to do this, but it is increasingly their practice to wait until somebody's out of the country uh, and then, as you say, slap them with a deprivation of citizenship so they can't come back. Now, the logic of the Home Office's position, I guess, and I'm not saying this is the right thing to do, obviously, but this is the logic of their position, is that if somebody has done something serious enough to warrant having their citizenship taken away, then you don't want them in this country. You want to make sure that they're gone before you do it. Otherwise, it slightly defeats the point of taking away their citizenship. That's what they would say, I think. 
Yeah, because if you were in the UK when it happened, then you could exercise your right of appeal. Uh, you may not be able to be removed somewhere else. And from a national security standpoint, as you say, the whole point was to remove the perceived threat that the person posed. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as I say, I'm, I'm not for one minute saying that's the right way for the Home Office to behave, but that is the logic of their position, yeah. And you mentioned that it's controversial, objectionable, and all the more so because this public good deprivation can happen not just to naturalised citizens, but even if you were born British, being British all your life, because unlike the fraud case, it's nothing to do with your conduct in obtaining citizenship. It's to do with your conduct in general. And so you can have your citizenship taken away even if you're British from birth. That's right. It is important to clarify at this point that we are talking about dual nationals. For the most part, there's one proviso which I'll come back to. Uh, but for the most part, we are talking about people who've got more than one citizenship. So the Home, home Office can't make people stateless, as I say, with a, with a small proviso, which I'll return to in a second. Uh, and that's because there's an international convention against statelessness, which we are signed up to. So the power to deprive people of their citizenship on the basis of on the basis that it's conducive to the public good only applies to people who've got another citizenship. And so one of the issues in the Begum case was whether she was a Bangladeshi citizen, because if she was not a Bangladeshi citizen, uh, the Home Office could not have taken away her citizenship. She denied that she was a Bangladeshi citizen. As I understand it, oddly enough, said to the Bangladesh government, um, but the British government thought that she was, and the British courts have so far sided with with, with the government. They've, they've concluded that under Bangladeshi law, as it would be interpreted by the Bangladeshi courts, as opposed to by the Bangladeshi government, uh, she is a Bangladeshi citizen. Unlike some of the cases that I've worked on, she hadn't reached the age of 21, and therefore she was entitled to have dual citizenship under Bangladeshi law. You're not entitled to have dual citizenship. In, many, in most cases, under Bangladeshi law, once you reach the age of 21. Uh, so the Secretary of State was entitled to take away her British citizenship because she wasn't made stateless. Whereas in other cases, the person might establish that they have no other citizenship to fall back on. They're only British, and therefore they can't have their citizenship taken away. That's right. Uh, and that is subject to the proviso I mentioned, mentioned earlier on, which is that the Secretary of State can take away your citizenship if you don't have another citizenship already in narrowly defined circumstances which are which are where you are a naturalized citizen so not born british but you acquired it after you were born um secondly you've conducted yourself in a way which is seriously prejudicial to the vital interests of the uk again that's not wholly clear what that means but a higher test than simply conducive to the public good you would have thought so something involving you know, espionage or, or, or treason, um, if one uses a slightly old-fashioned word. Um, and also the Home Office uh, has reasonable grounds for thinking that you could acquire another citizenship. So they can make you stateless if you meet that much higher test and if they think that you could acquire another citizenship in future. So you'd only be temporarily stateless in the Home Office's view. Now, deprivation of citizenship has only really been a thing in practice in the last 15 years or so. Let's just have a brief history lesson on this from David Anderson QC, the very eminent former reviewer of terrorism legislation. He was speaking about this recently in the House of Lords. The tightly drawn powers 
to remove citizenship under the British Nationality Act, including for disloyalty or disaffection towards Her Majesty, were not used in the 30 years prior to the War on Terror. But thresholds were reduced in 2003 and 2006, to the point where today ministers need only be satisfied not that someone is a terrorist or a traitor, uh, but only that removal would be conducive to the public good. So I have some specific figures on this from last Saturday's Guardian, which I know are reliable because the Guardian got them from me. So from 1973 to 2006, as David Anderson was saying, there were zero cases of citizenship deprivation, not one. And then from 2006 onwards, the legal safeguards are start to be watered down. You start to get a handful, one or two citizenship deprivation cases a year, creeping up to half a dozen after 2010, then 20 or so a year, 2013, 14. And then it really takes off in 2017. You have over 100 cases of conducive to the public good citizenship deprivation alone in that year. So all in, about 300 fraud cases since 2006 and 175 public good deprivations. Now, the Home Office doesn't dispute these figures, but but they spin them a little differently. They say, okay, we, we do use these powers a lot more now, but public good deprivation is it's in the interest of national security. It's used sparingly. And if you average out those figures, that's only 19 people a year, public good deprivations on average. So 19 people a year, like that sounds like a lot to me. That's a lot of people, not sparingly. Uh, what, do, what do you think? Well, it does sound a lot. Uh, and of course, it's increasing. So we've got no reason to think that it'll stay at 19 people per year. Uh, and it's a lot when you compare it to the 30-year period that you mentioned when there were none. And obviously, that's a period where it's not a period where there was no espionage going on. You know, it was the height of the Cold War, or part of it was. It's not a period where there was no serious organized crime going on. It's not even a period where there was no terrorism going on. Um, but I don't think anybody suggested that, for example, paramilitaries on either side in the Northern Irish conflict should have their citizenship taken away. There might have been a degree of irony in attempting to do that, I suppose, in those circumstances. But, uh, you know, those powers were not considered necessary for a long period of our history. Uh, and it's only recently, as you say, that they've begun to balloon in numbers. And I think we can only assume that they will continue to increase. The government is seeking further powers to uh, make it easier to take people's citizenship away, essentially. Uh, Can you describe what exactly they want to do? Yes, so just for context, uh, at the moment, the law is that the Home Office have to give the person notice, i.e. tell them, when they're having their citizenship taken away. That's a requirement of the current legislation, the British Nationality Act 1981. Now, the Home Office, until quite recently, had interpreted that as including... Uh, putting a letter or a notice of decision on their own file, on the Home Office file, and not actually giving it to the person concerned. Now, the High Court recently, in a case called D4, these cases are almost always anonymized. But the, the High Court said in that case, well, don't be absurd. Putting a letter on your file, on the Home Office's file, is not giving notice. It's not telling the person. Uh, that they've had their citizenship taken away. So you can't do that. And just to interject, that High Court decision you're talking about has just this morning been upheld uh, by the Court of Appeal as we're recording this, uh, or just before, on the 26th of January. 
so that decision upheld by the Court of Appeal, but uh, carry on. The Secretary of State is now seeking the power to effectively reverse the outcome in D4. They're seeking the power to be able to take away people's citizenship without having to tell them in quite a wide variety of circumstances, including where they can't locate the person, uh, where it would not be, as they put it, reasonably practicable to give notice, or if it's in the interest of national security not to tell them, if it's in um, the interest of the relationship between the UK and another country, so in our diplomatic interests not to tell them, or otherwise in the public interest. So again, you have this very broad uh, wording of the legislation or proposed legislation, which would enable the Secretary of State to take away citizenship in secret in quite a wide range of circumstances. Now, you could say, again, if you're the Home Office, and again, I'm not saying this is something I support, but um, if you're the Home Office, you could say, and indeed they have said things like this, you know, if somebody has deliberately put themselves in a situation where they can't be contacted, you know, we can't be prevented from taking away their citizenship in those circumstances. Or let's say they're in a situation where it's really, really urgent to prevent them from coming back to the UK. Uh, and we have to be able to take away their citizenship urgently without um, without telling them. Now, in those circumstances, you might say, well, okay, um, that, that doesn't sound all that unreasonable. But they haven't given themselves powers which are limited to those circumstances. As I say, they've given themselves extremely broad powers to take away citizenship in, as I say, a wide range of circumstances which go far beyond what you might think might be, you know, really compelling uh, or, or difficult situations. This extra power that they're seeking is all about notification requirements. It's not changing the law we've previously talked about, the conducive to the public good test. Um, so when it first came out, I was a little bit sceptical that this was actually a big deal in the grand scheme of things. You know, given how routine citizenship deprivation already is, adjusting the notification requirements, even with a widely drawn power, it seems like a relatively small tweak, but given what you've said, it does seem more significant than that. Yes, I think one has to look at these new powers or new proposed powers in the overall context. And there are huge problems with the whole idea of taking away people's citizenship. You know, one, it's extremely draconian, as I've said. Two, it's discriminatory because it overwhelmingly affects people with dual nationality who are likely to be people from migrant communities or recent migrant communities who are much more likely to have another citizenship by virtue of their own birth or, or through their parents. So it discriminates against certain groups of people in a, what seems to me a very unacceptable way. Thirdly, as we alluded to earlier on, it makes people who ought to be this country's problem into somebody else's problem. So, you know, again, if one comes back to the child sex abuse rings, you know, as I say, nobody will have a great deal of sympathy with those people, but ultimately, why should those people be the problem of the population of Pakistan and not uh, of the population of the UK and, and the security services and the police of the UK, where they committed their offences? So there are a number of really serious problems with the idea of deprivation uh, in principle. And also, it sends a signal, it seems to me, and this is what I think has caused an awful lot of the anger and concern. It sends a signal to people from certain communities that their citizenship is provisional, that it can be taken away on the whim, if you want to put it that way, or at least on, on the uh, action of the 
Home Secretary. And that is enormously problematic, particularly in a country where, you know, let's face it, there are already serious problems of racism and discrimination against certain minority groups. Um, so you have to see this change in the Home Office's powers in that context. Yeah, I mean, just on a political level, just to spell this out, I mean, if people object to the principle of citizenship deprivation for all the reasons you've just outlined, amending the Borders Bill to you know, get rid of this clause about abolishing the notice requirement, it doesn't change any of the existing law, right? Citizenship deprivation would still be permitted. It could still carry on. So if this particular clause was scrapped, it wouldn't roll back the many years of citizenship deprivation powers that we've accrued. That's right. It wouldn't go nearly far enough. Obviously, one of the objections to taking people's citizenship away without telling them is if you don't know that something's happened, uh, you, you can hardly appeal. Legally speaking, how would that work? I mean, if this clause goes through and the power to secretly strip people of their citizenship exists... Would the person then be able to appeal once they find out, for example, even if that's many years after the fact? That seems to be the intention, yes. Uh, it, it's not wholly clear how it, work, how it would work, but it seems to be the intention that uh, if you find out, as you say, it could be some years later that your citizenship has been taken away without you being given notice, then you would be able to appeal. But if you're appealing against citizenship deprivation, in the national security context, the conducive to the public good cases, invariably your appeal will be heard not in the ordinary immigration tribunal, but in the Special Immigration Appeals Commission, or SIAC. And in a SIAC appeal, your lawyer won't even be allowed to hear all the evidence against you because uh, of its sensitive national security nature. And you've appeared in SIAC, Alistair. What's it, what's it like? It's a peculiar experience. It does feel like you're sort of wrestling with a shadow. As an appellant, you would usually have two sets of representatives. You'd have your open representatives, i.e. your ordinary uh, lawyers, who are able to speak to you and take instructions from you, but don't see the majority of the evidence, certainly national security-based evidence against you. And then you will have what's called a special advocate, who can see the secret evidence against you, but can't speak to you about it. And you have this kind of separation of lawyers, two sets of lawyers who can't really communicate with each other or certainly can't communicate with each other adequately, and one of whom can't communicate with you, the appellant, uh, and the other of whom can communicate with you but doesn't know the whole of the case against you. Many appellants before SIAC find it an extremely frustrating experience not knowing what they're supposed to have done uh, and not being able to present an adequate defence. I can imagine. Even leaving aside the SIAC process and the difficulties, challenging evidence you don't know the details of, the scope that judges have to overturn a citizenship deprivation decision is now quite limited. The Supreme Court decision in the Shemima Begum case last year, to paraphrase and oversimplify, basically said, well, this is national security, the Home Secretary's prerogative not for judges to put themselves in the shoes of the decision maker. And unless the Home Office has done something completely off the wall, irrational, judges should be slow to interfere. Yes, essentially what Begum says in the Supreme Court is that 
the approach the courts should take on an appeal against deprivation on grounds of conducive to the public good is a public law approach. That is to say, to look at the, the rationality of the decision and the process followed, rather than substituting their own decision for the decision of the Secretary of State. Um, so it's a different uh, approach to the appeal to the one that was previously understood. And that came as quite a surprise to a lot of people, I think. Now, quite how far that extends, whether it also extends to deprivation cases, isn't entirely clear. The upper tribunal said that it does. Uh, the Court of Appeal has expressed some doubt, at least, about whether that is the case. And Deprivation for fraud cases. Is that's it? right, yes. Sorry, deprivation for fraud cases up to now have been dealt with on the basis that it's for the judge to substitute their own decision for that of the Home Office if they agree that the Home Office made a wrong decision. So they can say citizenship should not have been taken away. If the Begum approach applies to that, then all the judge can do is say, well, the Home Office uh, used an unfair process or acted irrationally in taking away citizenship. So I, I, the judge, cannot say citizenship should not have been taken away. All I can do is say that the process followed or the reasonableness of the decision uh, leads me to overturn that decision, which would presumably leave the Home Office uh, free to take another decision on a procedurally fair basis or on a more rational basis. So stepping back and looking at this in the round then, what we've got with citizenship deprivation is it's increasingly hard to appeal for the reasons you've just outlined. You have the Home Office pushing through expanded powers to carry out deprivation in the Borders Bill. And you have the numbers we've talked about indicating that the use of deprivation practice is going up. And given the objections to the practice that you've described, what are the prospects of challenging this kind of increase in use, either legally speaking through the political process? I mean, is it is that trajectory I've just described doomed to carry on, do you think? Legally speaking, uh the courts have so far been pretty lenient on the Home Office. They've given the Home Office quite a lot of scope to use these powers in, as you say, increasing numbers of cases and in a broader range of cases. Now, whether there will come a point where the courts say, hang on, this, is, this has got to stop, this is going too far, you, you shouldn't be taking away citizenship for, you know, ordinary offences, as it were, ordinary and inverted commas offences, as opposed to ones which... You know, undermine the fabric of society, which you could say, for example, terrorism or, or um, involvement in, in uh, armed, armed movements such as ISIS uh, does. Whether the courts will, will, will put up their hands and say, no, you can't go any further with this, we don't yet know. There's also the question that I just alluded to as to whether the courts are going to be limited to a public law approach, looking at the rationality and procedural fairness of the Home Office's decisions, or whether uh, that is only limited to national security cases and not, not to other ones. So quite how far the Home Office is going to be allowed to go by the courts isn't entirely clear, but the signs have not been good. Politically speaking, it's been very heartening to see a groundswell of opposition to these powers. Uh, whether that's going to get anywhere, it's very difficult to know. Um, clearly, the Home Office are probably not going to back down. It would seem very unlikely that they will. Um, we obviously have quite a hardline Home Secretary who 
believes that these measures are electorally popular and indeed presumably believes that they are necessary for national security. And so far, the opposition amongst uh, the public, particularly members of the public from communities most affected by these measures, hasn't necessarily been reflected in the attitudes of politicians. But we shall see. It's going to be an interesting period of time. Uh, it will. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Alistair McKenzie from Daisy Street Chambers. This has been a podcast from Free Movement. We're a website providing updates, commentary, training and advice on UK immigration and asylum law, www.freemovement.org.uk. We aim to put out a podcast every couple of weeks on Fridays. Regular listeners will know we don't always manage it, but I promise to be back with the next one on the 11th of February with Colin Yeo. Until then, thanks for listening.